Hey, how's it going? I'm Nick, the host of the Echo Academy podcast, a podcast where we share the tools and strategies that make life better. In this episode of our Road Less Traveled series, I speak with Moses Mohan about his experience as a monk. What's different from my other guests in this series is the fact that his road less traveled was a journey inwards. And from his answers, you can see how much it has benefited him. I hope this inspires you to journey inwards as well. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Moses Mohan. So I guess you know, you know, to to really kick things off, you know, the 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 reason why I just wanted to to get you on the 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 podcast and really to talk about things is is because you know you did experience a little bit of you know the monk journey, mm. and you know I kind of wanted to you know get an understanding of what that was like, and you know mm. hopefully by the end of it, people. You know, it's not so much for the listeners to 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 live a life of a monk or or, mm-hmm. or what you what you might call the female equivalent. Is it a monk still or something else? None, but yeah, I guess I guess you could say the uh, a life of renunciation. That's uh, probably okay. a bit more spacious. <laughs> there, there we go. Yeah. So yeah. So, but it's not so much for the listeners to to pursue that lifestyle, but just to understand what it's like to 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 consider an alternative and what that looked like for you and, mm. and basically the reasons why you, you went to it. So I suppose a good starting point would be to really understand what were your motivations, you know, to really experience, mm. you know, the life of a monk. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think the question that uh, continues to motivate me and in a way influence much of my actions is how can I be of service? Um, and, and, you know, this is a question I think the answer is always going to evolve and change based on where you are in life. But, um, you know, when I was younger, the intent was a, a bit more of a save the world narrative. You know, I'm going to go to India and Bangladesh to do development work and alleviate poverty, etc. You know, young and idealistic. And that work is very important, just, just to mention that. Um, and I did actually get some experience working both in Bangladesh and India in that space that ultimately came to the uh, conclusion then that I didn't have much to offer. I didn't have much skills, much, or at least I felt I didn't have much skills to offer. So I saw the very shiny, um, you know, management consulting, uh, you know, build your skills in problem solving and et cetera. And very shiny, no doubt a, prestige to it as well, um, attractive package, and somehow got into that bandwagon for some time. I joined McKinsey and Company, uh, which was a very formative experience. Um, and I didn't stay long at, at McKinsey, just a year, actually. Um, it, it, it trained me a lot in many ways, but I looked around at the very senior level and I saw that many partners uh, these were people with Harvard, NCAA, MBAs, extremely smart. Back then, I thought always oh, the smartest people in the world were extremely unhappy. You know, there were issues of overwork, alcoholism, even sexual misconduct that went unreported that I saw for myself, actually. Uh, 
And it just got me thinking, you know, these are the smartest people in the world. Something's fundamentally missing here. Um, so left the firm, continuing consulting, but joined a boutique firm and, you know, with an ex-McKinsey person, actually. And she was trying to bring a bit more humanity, a bit more coaching, a bit more human-centeredness into problem solving, which I, which I really appreciated. And that was, once again, wonderful experience. Got to do a lot of amazing work with the Singapore government, um, other big firms as well with around, yeah, how do we, how do we still do what we got to do in a more human way, essentially. Um, but I suppose that question, how can I be of service still continues. So then one day I just, I, I just met a monk, basically. I, back then I was uh, exploring mindfulness and I was using the app Headspace, quite popular these days, used it for pretty much three years. Um, and at some point I thought, you know, I want to experience this, like not just some dude talking to me in my ear. So maybe I should attend like a mindfulness retreat. So um, I happened to chance upon a couple of books by the Vietnamese master Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, one of the, I would say, uh, modern fathers of the mindfulness movement. He sort of made it very popular uh, and accessible, I think, um, and connected with the way he was writing, expressing the idea of mindfulness, and found out there was a retreat in Singapore at Labrador Park, actually, uh, and I signed up and uh, went there and um, it was a four-day retreat, wonderful experience. In that retreat, you get a chance to book a slot, like a one-on-one -on -one connect with a, with a, with a monk, to ask whatever you want to ask. So I'm like, you know, why not, right? You know, here, I should ask, I should, I should just do that. And so I did. And um, what I found in encountering this monk that I spoke to was someone who was a mix of a friend, a counselor, a coach, um, an advisor. So all sort of, you know, integrated into one person. Um, and uh, it just got me thinking, you know, this seems to be very important and meaningful work that he's doing. What if that could be a location for me? And um, so, and then I thought the only way to know is to try. And it so happened that I was finishing up some key projects. Um, I was single also. And there was this month internship program. I would describe it as such. They don't brand it as such. Three months, shave your head, take some vows, live the life in community, practicing mindfulness and compassion. And at the end of three months, you can leave or you can continue. So there was also a lot of luck and circumstance, uh, but it was really fundamentally me trying to respond to the question, how might I be of service? Yeah. And I think before we delve into the, the that, that experience, that three months or however long uh, you, you took to do that, um, you know, talk us through that. I mean, sure, you know, the the McKinsey's, the consulting or, or any, any sort of industry now it's, you know, high stress, high strung, just, you know, a complete extreme of what uh, in, in some ways a human is meant to do. Um, but at the same time, it's rewarding financially, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you pull yourself away or how did you pull yourself away and how did you feel, how did you, feel comfortable in your decision to follow what you believe was right? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. And I think ultimately all of us have to turn the camera around and ask ourselves, you know, what truly matters in life? And I had the great benefit of, uh, at that time, being in coach training. In coach training, you only do two things. You practice coaching and you receive coaching. And basically what happens is that you have nowhere to run. 
you yeah. have only yourself to look at um, in the mirror, essentially, through someone, of course, and, and you know, asking important questions, um, you know, who is myself, what is my work, how can I be of service? And, you know, especially in Asia, um, and, you know, my wife is Korean and uh, I'm Singaporean, uh, similar stories that, you know, our parents' generation, their, their theory or their hypothesis was, let's work, let's work extremely hard Let's get to a certain level of material well-being, and that would automatically, that would hopefully translate to fulfillment, success. And if we look around, that's not necessarily true. Are there people who are successful and happy? Yes, but often you find that the most unhappiest people actually are the ones who are extremely wealthy or in very you know high positions. So um, yeah, I think I think that's a question we all have to answer for ourselves, but. You know, being at McKinsey and back then with a bit of rose-tinted eyes, thinking, oh, these are the smartest people in the world, Harvard, INSEAD, MBA, senior partners, you know, working with elite organizations, commanding high pay, high respect. But I saw so much dissatisfaction in very senior leaders. And it, it was quite a bit of a shock to my system because I thought these are very smart people, and they are. And not to say they're very good people in the firm as well, don't get me wrong, but uh, it just really shattered this idea that the pursuit of material well-being, and maybe well-being is even the wrong word here, material accumulation at all costs, um, is that a price that's, that's worth it? Um, yeah, you know, I don't know when I'm going to die, and would I be content just sacrificing everything in that pursuit at the end? Is it really worth it? So, yeah, so that's what I would say. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. That's a fantastic way to put it. I mean, you know, and 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 one might probably even make the argument that it's not only the material accumulation, right, but the status accumulation as well. Absolutely. That all these things. Yeah. So I mean, you you, it's a shock to your system. You know, you 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 start to delve deeper into this mindfulness cause. You know, you 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 go to Plum Village. You know, to study under the the or study what Tignat Han probably um, espoused. Yeah, talk us through that experience. You know, well, what was that like? You know, especially on day one. <laughs> yeah, you. You know, I was with a group of seventeen, uh, and uh, fairly multi multinational, at least within Asia, with people from Thailand, Japan. Uh, not Japan, sorry, um, Thailand, Taiwan, Korea, uh, Indonesia. Um, yeah, it's a fairly diverse group. China as well, actually. Uh, so first two weeks, you basically are, you, 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 are, you have a title, you're called an aspirant. So you're aspiring to become a monastic, to take the vows. So it's kind of boot camp, basically. Yeah. And two, you know, you know, two weeks you receive like sort of intensive instruction preparing you um, for life as a monastic. And in Plum Village, uh, generally we're invited to balance uh, four elements. Um, the first is study, the second is practice, um, the third is service, and then the last one is play. So basically, we receive instruction in these various four components. Um, and then at the two week mark, there is uh, a ceremony, and you know, you can invite your parents. I invited my mom and my sister actually. 
uh, where um, it's kind of like getting married, as I would describe it. You have to serve tea <laughs> to your parents um, and apologize. Basically, I had to say to my mom, thanks for taking care of me. Sorry I've been such a mess. Please forgive me <laughs> for all the nonsense I have done. Can I have your blessings to, to, to take the monastic vows? Uh, it was very healing moment for me and my mom, you know, a typical Asian family. We don't express these things to each other that very much. And um, then your head gets shaved and you put on the robes. You live in community. And it was a community. It was a big community in Thailand, um, two hours off Bangkok, um, 200 monks and nuns, uh, quite a big community. And um, it's wonderful to live in a community, especially when all of us basically were orienting to a single intention, cultivating more mindfulness, more compassion in ourselves so that we can then help others to do the same as well. So that's the whole life of a monastic is oriented in that way. And typically as a novice monk, which I was, you, your job is literally to transform your own chin, uh, your own mud <laughs> into a lotus, basically, to work with that. And then once, usually after five years, then when you're a bit more steady and stable in your, I suppose, um, your inner peace, your inner compassion, then you are a bit more outward in serving others. So, yeah, literally for three months, that's, uh, that's the life. We would wake up pretty early, five, we would do some silent sitting meditation, walking meditation, breakfast, all in silence all the way to breakfast. After breakfast, we break the silence. We would have some sort of class in the morning and then lunch, mindful eating together, partially in silence. Bless you. And then in the, in the afternoon, we would always have uh, a bit of time for space, so nap or you know, just relaxation. And then there's always work. We get randomly assigned jobs. So I did everything from, uh, you know, working in the garden, recycling trash, uh, clearing logs, arranging meditation hall, many things, uh, sort of a roster, cooking as well. It's a self-sustained community. And then typically in the evening, we would have uh, some sort of evening practice. And then, uh, yeah, we would call it a night. So that's a typical day. Yeah. I mean, you, I mean, you talk about, you know, turning your, your basically your shit into a lotus. <laughs> what did you... If it's not too personal a question, like what is hmm. the what is the worst shit or the biggest shit that that you know you eventually molded into a lotus? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, I grew up in a family that was running back then a family business, which was back then very successful. Actually, um, my parents got a divorce ultimately because they had very different. Uh, I suppose, orientations in life and the business didn't work out ultimately as well. Um, so I think for most of my life, I was always dis distancing myself from, you know, who my parents were, you know. Um, and a big part of, I think, uh, the, the, my, my time there and in, in the way Thich Nhat Hanh uh, instructs meditation, it's very simple. It's really just two steps, stopping and looking deeply. So first, we need to be able to stop. And when we have enough stability, stillness, then we can look deeply and insight emerges from that. So 
whether this doesn't have to be formally, but even as you walk or as you cook or even as you work in your work, you can do that as well. But yeah, it was for me looking at, um, you know, integrating my parents inside of me, acknowledging that they tried their best, that, um, you know, they have their shortcomings, but also they have their gifts and their gifts continue in me in many ways. So in a way, it was it was really just a bit of an inner reconciliation of, you know, this sort of, this sort of pain, and I think even shame to some extent that I felt uh, growing up. Um, so that that's probably the most profound shift for me. The sense of like, yeah, I I am the continuation of my parents, and whatever um, bad seeds that I tr- inherited from them, that's my work to transform. And whatever good seeds I inherited from them, it's my work to continue to nourish. Yeah. You know, that's uh, something I can relate to, Moses. Like, I mean, that is probably one of the things that, uh, uh, you know, I had also had to deal with, you know. I th- and I think it's something that is more common than we, we, we tend to acknowledge. This idea of, um, you know, our relationship with our parents, whether it's good or bad, there's always some some level of grudge that we hold however small or however big um and you know i think over time you know it's really learning to let go of that you know because he i mean as the saying goes right life doesn't come with a rule book and so our parents like us figure out life as they as as it comes and as 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 they as they see it based on the re- limited resources or, you know, the, the culture and the ideologies they hold true. And I think it's the same for us as well. And, you know, if, if we have kids, for example, that same thing will happen, I suppose. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I think that's the privilege of adulthood, right? To, there will come a point where, where, whether we, whether we blame our parents or not, I think, we will acknowledge that, you know, that everyone deserves like forgiveness for, and everyone deserves the acknowledgement that we do the best we can with what we have. There was a, you know, it's a bit of a, one of my teachers in the monastery he had this saying, whatever you don't transform, you transmit. So if you are holding, you know, resentment, uh, trauma, anger, sadness. If you don't work with that, you end up transmitting it consciously or consciously. So it's in it's in our self-interest, I believe, to actually work with whatever it is, whether it's originating from our parents uh, or from some other place. Um, yeah, it is it is our, uh, I think, our duty uh, to integrate that. Not even, I would say, going beyond letting go, because letting go is... Sometimes it's easy and sometimes we need to do that, but it's easy to compartmentalize things somewhere. But at some point we have to we have to really be look at ourselves with a lot of honesty. Yeah. True that. So what was what was the hardest part of the experience of being a monk? To be honest, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, it wasn't a you know, but you know, my, uh, there were 17 of us, right? I mentioned, um, a big part of it, of, of at least in Thich Nhat Hanh's Zen tradition is living in community. So I was living like in a, in a dorm, like a room with like 
seven other people of which all of us spoke the same common language you know um so i think probably one of the most challenging things at least in the plant tradition is uh living in community because and you you know you can relate this living with your own family i think that's probably the closest thing um different people different personalities so are we able to let go of our egos are we able to to meet people where they are uh, yeah that's probably the most challenging thing i think being together yeah so what did you learn about meeting people where they are how do you do it yeah you know in plum village we have this specific practice called beginning of you um and there's a formal way of doing it it's an informal way of doing it you know the formal way of doing it is um sometimes it would happen we would all gather together sometimes one one person goes in front and then we would start with uh, what what we would call uh, you know watering the person's flowers so you know offering affirmations what i appreciate about you is etc um so you're always starting with that and then moving into actually what i've struggled with in relation to you or how you might have hurt me is this so expressing any hurts or maybe disagreements that you might have had with the person who's still there and finally uh, what i need from you is moving forward etc that sometimes it ends with hugging meditation or something like that um of course <laughs> you know i i also have to do this informally uh, it's quite funny actually um there were five of us uh, men brothers i suppose back then and for some reason i was told to be the big brother in that group so we had one particular uh and we were all in the same room and there was this one particular brother who uh had the most insane phone alarm like 4am it would go off and there were lights everywhere and sounds and everyone still asleep <laughs> you know uh, and this was early on in the journey so we didn't know each other that well and um all of the other brothers came to me and said hey can you do something about this you're the big brother right you got to do something about this this guy is like i mean it's clearly like not aware and like not not thoughtful and um Yeah but I you know I was thinking what's the skillful way to do this uh, you know telling him directly might cause some harm as well so you know compassionate speech has to be um well I use an acronym here ACT act it's got to be accurate um telling the truth got to be compassionate as well person into the context and it's got to be timely at the right time so so happened that Two days later we were working together in the garden we were assigned together in the garden so we were sweating it's hot day you know we're digging in the soil together then after an hour uh, of digging you know suffering together a little bit we were walking back and i just said now step tell me so hey hey man you know your alarm is a loud you think you can do something about it said, yeah no problem so yeah that's informal right getting a new in a sense that we we were um in an experience together a shared experience of suffering and therefore bit, bit more open to each other so so yeah that's that's you know kind of how i worked with that but now to generalize that i think um how do you be wise and how do you be compassionate so have a positive intent to benefit the person the team the situation and also be wise about how you you know sharing some something with someone that might be difficult for them to receive in general speaking Yeah. 
Yeah, that's it's it's interesting because that's probably one of the most powerful things we can really take into the world outside the the monastic life, right? Like mm-hmm. the just this idea of, you know, compassion and really speaking to others you know in that compassionate way which is easy enough to do when you're in the right frame of mind right but you know when you're when you're filled with anger or impatience and stuff like that all these things that all of us feel on a day-to-day basis you know whether it's at work or something like that then it really becomes you know much harder what 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 would you say is the most memorable experience you've had from this from yeah this I'll just make one one quick comment about what you said. And there's a sort of Zen saying, you know, um, chop wood before the winter. So before winter comes, you have to, you know, prepare the firewood. Similarly, don't wait until things explode and then try to fix a relationship. You know, it's very important to first spend time with yourself and cultivate more inner stability, joy, uh, etc. And then to also work with relationships to improve them. On an ongoing basis, so chop wood, so don't wait for the winter. Um, the memorable experience—it's um, very hard for me to pinpoint something specifically. Actually, because uh, one is, I think, I mentioned earlier when before I took the vows, that very sort of intimate moment with my mother, sort of sharing with her. Thank you. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Can I have support? I think that was very healing, just for me and my mom to start with. Um, but yeah, man, it's 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 really hard to pick one specific moment. Thinking. Oh, how about and, this? If I if I were to rephrase it, right? What is one experience like? If someone, if someone were to say, like, only tell me one experience from this monkhood, what w- what would be defining enough that will do it just that whole experience justice? Yeah, I hear you. Um, just tracking back mentally to see if something specific is coming up. Well, maybe two things, and I'll, I'll start with the first one, and then we'll, we'll see if the second one makes sense. Um, one is, so we had been in the monastery for pretty much like almost two months straight. We hadn't left, just there straight, living, practicing, etc. Uh, and then we were invited to Bangkok to facilitate a, what, what we call a day of mindfulness. Basically, it's a full day kind of mindfulness workshop for lay people. Um, so we went to Bangkok went well, but ended late. Um, and uh, we wouldn't miss dinner at the monastery. So uh, one of the uh, senior brothers says, hey, don't worry, we got a post stop by 7-Eleven, you know, on the way back. And uh, <clears throat> first time I am engaging with something commercial after two, like two plus months, you know, within the monastery, self-sustained, there's no business whatsoever. And I remember walking into the 7-Eleven and, um, and I was looking, and then, I, you know, they have these very bright, luminescent signs, right? It's a bunch of pictures and this ice cream 
was this ice cream section. And I just remember walking in and that sign was the most vivid I had ever experienced in my life. You know, suddenly I had all those, I suppose, cravings for like sweet stuff. And I have very sweet tooth, you know, ice cream and cake in that moment. It just sort of really almost like blew up like fireworks in my mind. Like, oh, got to have that, got to have that. Um, yeah, uh, it was it, it was a very, very vivid moment for me. I never, ever read an ice cream sign in any shop in my life with that level of clarity and detail <laughs> in my mind. And, you know, I guess there's a couple of things that if I were to unpack that, you know, one is I had been, I had been cult cultivating my faculty of awareness for quite some time, two months, ten to be in the monastery. So maybe that's always happened. I just wasn't aware, you know. So, and two is... Um, because I was in a way protected from some of these things in the monastery, almost like, you know, it's a cocoon, um, finally re-encountering uh, what we would experience as everyday life um, and having to work with that. So, so yeah, so ultimately, you know, any most great masters, whether they're in a monastery or in a cave, the journey always ends with a re-entry into society at, at some point. So then, if I extrapolate this journey, then it's really an invitation to see everything as workable, whatever arises as workable. So that sort of left a mark in my mind, in a way helped me to transition as I continue out here in the labor world. So that's probably a particular moment that comes to mind as well. Hmm. And I wanna and and I wanna elaborate on that as well. And I think that's something that many people struggle with and as you speak about it i start to think about it it's not just um this type of lifestyle of philosophy that becomes challenging when we reintegrate into the real world but you often see people you know who have this extreme wanderlust for example or this like unsettled mind or, or anything like that you know where they travel the world you know, and then they come back and they feel so unsettled and they want to leave again. I think a lot of us, I think that's where the challenge comes in, right? You know, even when we want to take this like holy vow or something that that requires us to practice a, a bit of self-control, when we come back to the real world, that's when the challenge starts. You know, we can't reintegrate with a different philosophy because there's just so much conflict so how did you how did you deal with that yeah you know i would say for myself and i and i and, and i think it for probably most people every journey is almost always like this you start here go like this around the world whatever, but ultimately comes back to you so that's that's my experience um and i think it continues to hold true and you use the word integration um and i think that is actually the answer in of itself how do we live with integrity? Um, trauma, the opposite of integration, is living with a lack of integration. Um, and all of us in some way, shape, or form have experienced uh, some sort of trauma. So I would say a um, couple of things maybe, but maybe, maybe let me just zoom out first and share, I think, my overall perspective and then maybe some concrete things. I think all of us are searching for something. Uh, it could be a feeling of something missing. It could be a feeling of I don't belong. It could be a feeling of if I just find someone 
you know, my life would be perfect or if I find the perfect job. Um, and these are all like this, right? We're all doing this, but at some point you have to come back here. But what are we coming back to? Um, we're coming back to what I believe, um, and this research backs up as well, to this sense of basic okayness, which is fundamentally I'm okay where I am. My own skin, yes, circumstances are probably never ever going to be perfect, but there's a basic okayness that I can return to inside myself, wherever I might be, wherever I might, I might be with. So I think that is the journey of life from my perspective. So how do, how do we actually rediscover, because it's already there, this sense of basic okayness. I'm not even using the word good here or like, you know, high, but it's a basic okayness. Uh, and I think there are a couple of things practically to do to get there. And one is most of us probably have some sort of trauma or depression. So um, I think you have more to say about this than I do, but um, firstly, just getting the necessary support to bring our shadows into the light, so to speak, and work with them, work with them, and try to integrate them. So the, the five-year-old part of you that was ashamed or alone, bring that in, integrating that, that part of you. So I think that's really the first step, which is let's get support to, to bring our shadows into the light, to transform them, to work with them. And then two is everything ultimately boils down to your mind. Here, here, I don't know where it is, but uh, um, yeah, cultivating, uh, cultivating your mind, uh, whatever tradition, secular or otherwise, that's supportive for you. Uh, but from this basic okayness springs many qualities like wisdom, compassion. Um, so sort of training your mind to connect with these basic qualities more and more and more. And then finally, go be of service. Serving others is probably what some might call enlightened self-interest. Uh, when you serve other people, you feel better. So if you only do the first two, it's kind of insular. Me, 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 I, me, mine. I'm going to solve myself out and care for everyone else. But also have an intention to benefit other people. And then, and then I think there's a, those are three things I would say to start with. Um, in summary, which is, you know, get help to sort out your trauma cultivate uh, your mind and its good qualities that are already there. And then three is be your service. And then I think that's, 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 that's still the journey I continue to be on. Yeah. Beautifully said. What do you, is that what your time in the monastic way? I mean, is that what it, th it, it taught you or was there something else? more valuable that it taught you about life in general? I mean, there's so many things, I mean, to have is from, um, from the monastery, but if I were to essentialize it into a fairly famous sort of mantra from Plum Village, it's uh, no mud, no lotus. Um, and this idea that a lotus only grows when there is sufficient mud. We don't have the mud, the lotus will not bloom. So, that really brings back to the point of integration. So 
the biggest insight for me is to work with the mud and to see actually the mud as necessary conditions, fertilizer, to allow my, the lotus of my life and myself to bloom and to offer the fragrance to others as well. So I, I would say that's probably the biggest thing that I continue to draw from, at least from this uh, particular tradition from village. Um, yeah, that's awesome, man. So how, what is your lotus, if that makes any sense? You know, if if you were a lotus now, who are you? You know, I used to think of compassion as a very, or service as a very big, lofty idea. But I think the, the more I engage with this uh, myself, it's, you know, how can I be of service? Uh, how can I be there uh, for the people who I'm directly in contact with on a day-to-day basis? Whether that's with, you know, the delivery drivers who are working around the clock these days to get us food while, some, you know, we're knocked down in Singapore, um, offering them just so thank you and a compliment or engaging with a difficult client um, and being firm and compassionate or listening to my partner when he's having a hard day and also just being with myself. So part of part of this also is it starts with, you know, another saying in Plumbridge is, you know, peace in oneself, peace in the world. This whole idea is you also need to start with yourself. So um, but in essence, I think it's working with yourself and what's in front of you. That is the lotus of my life, at least. And, and if I can, I probably can't offer much except the, the little interactions that I might have with people on a day-to-day basis. But that gives me a lot of um, contentment, energy, sometimes frustration. Many times frustration, actually, for sure. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, that's what I would say. Working with the circumstances. Yeah which is more than many of us, I'm sure. You know, that's a great start. So final question, you know, using your experience, you know, trying to, um, or maybe before that, you know, before the final final question, I'd like to ask, Mm -hmm. so what made you not continue Mm -hmm. uh, in the monastery? What made you come back out into the real world, so to speak? Or to, re- or to integrate into the real world? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a really great question. I, you know, like I said, it wasn't a hard life for me. Honestly, I really enjoyed it. Um, and we had some time towards the tail end of the program, the monastic program, to ask ourselves, you know, whether we wanted to continue or not. And ultimately, I came to the conclusion, back to the you know, orientation around service, that um, how could I bring the monastery outside to the real world? Because the number of people who would self-select and visit such a place is very limited, actually. And given my background in the corporate world, these days, uh, the kings and princes of our time are the CEOs of large organizations. There's research showing that your direct boss has more impact on your health than your partner does. So um, how do I bring these wisdom practices out to the world, to the business world in particular, to the places of power, to the places where decisions are made, so that hopefully the workplace is a bit more human, people feel more content, more happy. 
So yeah, that continues to be the intention of the work, I think. But it really was back to the starting point of this conversation today, which is how can I be of service? Yeah, that's a very powerful why. So final question, um, you know, um, through your experience, you know, uh, in the monastic way, what do you think is the value of uncommon experiences like this? You know, in your words, you know, it's a very self-selective one, not a, not something just every Tom and Jerry would do, right? So, like, what do you think is the value of these types of uncommon experiences? Yeah, um, this is my consultant brain here, but there's a there's a one there's a lot of research on this actually. This framework around ritual, um, and this. It's usually a huge um, um, situate, search, shift, sustain. This is the work of Dr. David Drake, narrative coaching. But um, often any ritual involves leaving the familiar, whatever that might be. Um, so externally, we need, it's helpful uh, to have to leave your comfort zone, to enter into a different space. And then when the external world changes, the internal world changes as well. So, and then you get to work in the internal world, which is your character, your, your aspirations, etc. You work through that. And then at some point you have to re-emerge an external world again. So I think the value of such experiences, um, and I know most of us still may be in lockdown, but it's possible. It's basically the invitation is to step outside of the familiar or comfort zones uh, so that we have the space to really consider who is myself, what is my work, and then come back to the world again. Mm. So if not, if people are interested, but not necessarily in like, you know, becoming a monk or anything like that, What's a, what's a way that they can escape the world first to to reassess, to assess or to calibrate before coming back? Like, What's a good way they can do that for any normal person? Yeah. Well, I hate to say you can't escape the world. It's not possible. <laughs> we, live, we live in the world. We are the world, actually. But another saying from Plum Village is the only way out is in. And in is accessible anytime, anywhere, any place. Um, and it starts with the mind. So my strong recommendation is to find a mind training practice, whatever it is, whether you call it mindfulness, whether it's secular, whether it's non-secular, and you actually find this all the wisdom traditions. There is a core element of in. Uh, but from a neuroscience perspective, investing 10 minutes per day uh, to train your mind, even in the basic breath meditation practice, leads to the thickening of your prefrontal cortex, which is the part of your brain that is responsible for conscious choice. Um, so that's something all of us can invest in every day. It just takes 10 minutes. Um, the uh, many apps out there, the ROI is uh, immense. Um, that's, that's what I would say to start with. And at some point, if you're able to make space, whether it's a staycation, you know, by yourself, um, or it's one night, 
doesn't matter. But creating space just to be alone, just to be alone. And to give yourself the space to really ask yourself to look to, to stop and to look deeply inside of yourself, to answer two fundamental questions. Who is myself? What is my work? And then you go from there. And the journey will only go on and just to add one thing, which is that we're not searching for anything that's outside of us. All this inner search, so to speak, is really a rediscovery of basic human qualities that we all have access to and that you can bring to light your work. So you don't have to run away from your job or your, your marriage or your relationship, but how do you see daily life as a crucible, as a place of practice for you to bring and apply these teachings to the test. Jack Confield, a very famous uh, uh, sort of wisdom teacher, he likes to say, if you want to test your level of mindfulness and compassion, just go home, have dinner with your family. You'll see for yourself. <laughs> You'll be able to see immediately <laughs> your level of training. So you don't have to you don't have to go too far to some monastery. Just engage in daily life. Yeah. Perfect way to end this. Yeah, thanks so much, Mo Moses, to, for really um, sharing your experience. Um, you know, I, I kind of like these like uncommon experiences, or because I mean, this series is essentially the road less traveled. And uh, you know, I, I'm not sure if I mentioned it in in the other podcast, but essentially, this series is not really for. I want as much as I want people to to listen to different experiences, whether it's travel or. Or, or anything like that. It, it's more for people to understand that there are many different ways to discover ourselves. And I think at the end of the day, the common thing about you and all the people I've had the privilege of interviewing for this series, really the common denominator is the courage they had to pursue this and to experience this so that they could get something out of it. So thank you so much for sharing your experience. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me.